Hey y'all, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots, aka me, your host. I am very excited to be joined by a water sign today because I've been struggling responding to the Scorpio full moon and all of its revelations and contradictions. And I've also been thinking a lot about how much time so many of us are spending on digital platforms, on the internet, on social media platforms, and kind of the long-term impacts of that, not just on our mental health, but on our bodies, on our spirit, in our hearts, and in our relationships. So I'm very excited to be joined today by Annika Henstein Isora. Hi. Hi. Annika, you are an incredible artist, art director, poet, writer, just like incredible person to be in relationship with. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for today. And, you know, I think for context for folks who might not know, I've been following your work for some time, really admire your work, learn so much from all of your offerings and contributions. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my perspective is someone that is I was just telling you a little earlier, I feel very challenged when I hear the term innovation and solutions Mm. to problems (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and solutions to crises um, Mm. through the tech world and the tech field. And you Mm -hmm. are someone that's like really teasing out a lot of these contradictions, right? Like what is possible in this digital realm What are some Mm. non-negotiables? What are some boundaries? What is like some historical context that we should have as we're navigating, you know, using Instagram two hours a day or more, TikTok, how much information personally we share on these platforms, you know, all of the things in between. So before we get into all of that mess, I want to kind of back up a little bit and give you some space to kind of talk to us a little bit about who you are, kind of the work that you're up to, and yeah, what sort of values are anchoring you in your work these days? Yes. After all that goodness, I'm like blushing through the phone. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here, but like you said, I'm an artist and a writer and an art director, and I'm also a UI designer, so I do a lot of work in digital platforms, in apps and websites, and also a graphic and brand designer. And at the same time as I've worked with artists like Jamila Woods or Curtis Roach on their branding, I've also worked with companies like Intel, like Samsung. And now I'm the creative director of design and UI at Somewhere Good which is a to-be-released social platform (laughs) created by people of color for people of color that I'm very excited about. And I'm just very excited to be here. Yes, happy to have you, love. Really happy that we made it happen. So um, for for folks that don't know and asking for me, what exactly is a UI designer? Totally. How will you explain that? So UI stands for user interface. So it's a designer that's literally working with and creating the interfaces that we interact with. So 
Instagram and what Instagram looks like, there was a designer that chose how that heart-shaped like should be shaped and where it goes. There was a UI designer behind replacing your post button with a real button or with a shop button. So there are designers that are both thinking very tactically design-wise, but also psychological-wise, thinking about where and how to get people to perform an action. So it's both at the same time. Mm, Thank you for that. So that brings up a lot, right? Because Mm -hmm. this the use of design the use of artistry and the use of creative power which we have seen many times been used for you know very questionable interests particularly like interest of the elite capitalist mm-hmm. interests you know really for profit's sake even if it's mediating through anti-black platforms fascist platforms algorithms that are just quite violent and dangerous so I'm curious from your positionality, you know, as, as someone who is very political and very aware of our, the situation we're in mm-hmm. um, and who's also a black queer artist, kind of what are some of the top of line noticings you're you are observing how brands, corporations are sort of exploiting this? And I'm also curious to hear of the other side. Right. And not to think in binaries, but like there's always resistance to these things. So I would love Mm -hmm. to hear kind of the spectrum we're in. Mm. Few. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many that come to mind, like just as somebody that works on digital platforms, but has also grown up on the internet. And I think the best way for me to dive into that question is just really grounding what I mean when I talk about the internet and Mm -hmm. the history of the internet, because now we're so consumed by it that we almost forget that there were steps taken to get to where we are today. So when we talk about the history of the internet, people often use this three phase timeline. When the internet first went out, we can call that web 1.0. And that was when websites were just read only. It was like the first stage. You were only maybe looking at something like a Wikipedia article. And the big thing that was happening when the internet first came out is that people weren't generally generating the content that you see on websites. And then we moved into web 2.0. And I think the biggest marker of Web 2.0 was when Facebook created the like button. So Mm. once that happened, you started having people be able to interact with one another. And that was kind of the birth of the social web that we now have. And a lot more happened with that phase. So you have people that started to create content and interact with each other through social media and forums. And with that, you started to have these marketplaces pop up and you started to have advertisements pop up and you started to have companies and brands realize that they needed to buy ads in order to capture people's attention. Mm -hmm. And so this place that we're in with the internet 
I think has really reached this threshold because the social internet is very new, I would argue. Like we're very, it's very messy right now because it is very new. And it also, I think, has been guided by interests that are more invested in militarization and pushing forward colonial ideas. And what I mean by that is there's a way to describe the kind of state that we're in right now and it's called the attention economy so with this new internet that we're in where you have ads where you have people interacting with each other the idea of the attention economy is that literally your attention equals profit for companies Mm -hmm. so you literally have companies that are trying to capture your attention because it equals money for them like Google, for example, bases so much of their income off of advertisements. And what that really has led us to is algorithms really impacting so much of how we interact online. And there has been a really big boom in algorithmic justice and Mm -hmm. algorithmic oppression. And to name names, Dr. Sophia Moja Noble is one of my icons in this field. But she was among the first to name this thing called algorithmic oppression, which is essentially the way that operating systems on the the web oppress due to their algorithms. And we can see that in so many different ways. So when I think of algorithmic oppression, I think of how on Instagram, we see certain types of bodies that do not fit the narrative of white beauty standards. So black folks, trans folks, queer folks, dark skinned folks, fat folks, disabled folks. We see these profiles getting shadow banned, getting deleted, getting blocked. And that is an example of algorithmic oppression. It's literally algorithms determining that a certain body is not worth receiving attention. And I think that's very concerning in the ways that attention in our kind of society often equates to care, empathy, and love. And also the ways that we can see algorithmic oppression working go into so many other different facets. Like if we move into facial recognition technology, right? There has been a lot of research on how many types of law enforcement are starting to use algorithms in order to in order to criminalize people, in order to see who should be charged of a crime. And it's what has been shown is that there's a bias because algorithms cannot recognize darker skin. And so there are higher error rates. And so the idea that you have these search surveillance programs that are using algorithms and they're not working, that has incredible effects on school surveillance, on Mm -hmm. law enforcement, on border control, on hiring. So 
this place that we are at, I feel like in the internet is that algorithms are ruling a lot of what we do, but those algorithms are not invested in things like safety, in care, in connection, in community. They're often very linked to these other alternative alternative spaces that are not serving those types of spaces. Um, I trailed a little there, but <laughs> but it's my mind is going many different places because the internet today is just like so many different entanglements and entanglements. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really get stuck on who is being uplifted by algorithms and who is not, who is being silenced and who is not, who is being given the benefit of the doubt and who is not. People I think sometimes believe that the internet is a separate space from real life, quote unquote. But Legacy Russell, who's an incredible scholar, writer, named that really our online lives are another extension of our life. There is no kind of like fake space of yourself online. It's just an extension of it. So the same power dynamics that we see in society end up reflecting themselves on online platforms, especially because they're designed by people that are invested in white supremacy and the ways that it functions. So. Those are a couple ways. <laughs> <laughs> We're just looking at each other like, sheesh. <laughs> Whew. I mean, absolutely. I, I just really want to affirm everything you just named because, I mean, for me, when I read Algorithms of Oppression in, um, I want to say in the end of 2019, maybe early 2020, maybe I have my years messed up, you know, because of the pandemic, but shortly after the book came out and for me, like it, it weaved in so many connections, right? Like if you have a a certain analysis, it doesn't click. And also once, if you're a person that has certain body and a certain politic, it becomes very apparent very quickly that these platforms are just not going to sort of open the door willingly, right? And that there's always going to be contention. Um, But reading Algorithms of Oppression for me gave me a lot of context, helped me sort of rethink kind of my own engagement in in, in this world, in this digital world. And I think also more recently, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing that really talks about mm-hmm. the attention economy was also very helpful. Because so I think this this concept that you brought up that our attention is quite literally the currency of the game mm-hmm. because we know that that attention also becomes literal currency, right? Like the longer you're on Instagram, the more ads you're going to see, the more likely you are to buy some shit or join mm-hmm. a subscription or try something, you know, like... It just becomes so obvious. Um, And for me, I mean, I think just even in the last couple of years, similar to you, I've grown up with in the Internet, you know, had MySpace, had Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I think Instagram was coming up like mid high school. So like really have rocked with it for a while. And I think you learn how to finesse like you learn the game for a bit. 
mm-hmm. there's been so many changes in the platform, right? Like I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't remember ads in the beginning. Um, like it really just felt kind of like free. Also, even how people engaged with it. There wasn't like the personal branding yet. You know, that that yeah. became like a, a, you know, secondary thing. Like we start seeing people kind of doing like online businesses and online branding and certain things. But it's still very niche. You know, it's like mm-hmm. kind of the online version of businesses we see in the real world, maybe. Right. Then now we're kind of in this like milieu that's like everyone's a personal brand. Right. And everyone's yes. trying to sell and commodify and kind of like finesse himself as a puzzle piece in this like fascist algorithmic platform which i think for a lot of us is actually becoming very frustrating very disheartening and it's probably not the best route for our dreams of liberation or like for our sense of well-being and connection right um so I'm curious, kind of, you know, you also, especially you're a person with also a large platform and also someone that's really trying to articulate what, you know, this this idea of care, of well-being, of safety, of love. What what does that really look like? So I'm curious, like, you know, to this point of like the personal branding, what we're seeing, kind of almost a self-modification. A lot of us are kind of partaking in, but also maybe trying to resist Mm-hmm. Kind of like where where do you place yourself? What are you seeing? What are you noticing? Mm, yes, there was a note you said that stuck out to me, which was where you noted that when Instagram first started, there weren't ads. And you're right. When first when Instagram was first created, it was created for photographers specifically, mm. and then once it was cured by Facebook you started to see the interests of Facebook gain way. And so now it's quite, it's, it's, it is this frustrating place, right? Because something I think about with Instagram, because I have so many woes, so much anger around that platform. But when I think about it, Instagram was never designed for community. It wasn't even really designed for dialogue exactly. I don't think the comments of an Instagram post are really the best designed way in order for somebody to have a forum. There was never anything in mind around really how can we design this platform to best engage in community. And so I understand why I'm frustrated with this platform because like I think all of us in a way, we've hackneyed together these different pieces of Instagram in order to try and make it into this mishmash kind of usable platform because many of us are on there. Cause I think I always wanna like really hold nuance with it because like, yes, hate IG in many <laughs> different ways and still, it is one of the most accessible ways that I can reach new people, that I can access knowledge from people. And so when I think about how IG has moved into this place where everyone has to be a brand specifically, and I think brand is a really interesting term because there's meaning to that word. Mm. Like there's, To be a brand means that there is a, one, to have to give yourself a digestible narrative, 
like to have to portray to the world a narrative that people can quickly capture and understand. And that to me is immediately white supremacy in a way, Mm -hmm. because you are really enforcing the idea that you need to fit into a box perfectly. And only if you fit into something that is neat and organized, is it worth attention? Is it worth likes? Is it worth reshares, bookmarks, etc.? There's all these different ways that we give praise on mm-hmm. IG. And I think you have to, like you said, play the game a little bit in order to really be given that amount of care. So I really am curious about the ways that we can achieve connection and care online. And I even am cognizant of the ways that that happens on Instagram. I think with the uprisings and the use of mutual aid on Instagram, that was a really powerful example of using that tool. And yet Instagram was not made for mutual aid. It was not made for us to be able to rally around members of our community. So I think the most helpful thing of Instagram is seeing like, okay, we've been rocking on the internet for a while. This internet thing isn't gonna go away. It's only going to get more ingrained, I would argue. So what is it that we like about this platform and what do we actually really need now and i think a lot of folks are saying that they want to see new ways that we can connect and connect in ways that are really ingrained in or connect in ways that are grounded in safety and authenticity and also exploring ways that we can really explore care on social platforms and i think that's very confusing for a lot of us it's confusing to me because i really have to think about like what does care look like online Mm -hmm. like what does care look like with people that are my real irl friends versus strangers is care even possible on these platforms is community possible on instagram is community possible on an online platform I'm a pause there, <laughs> but <laughs> those are yeah. those are some things I think about. Those are some of the questions. I feel like I'm always. I think this last year was really challenging in how I tried to process those questions. Because, yeah, I'm also an internet kid. You know, obviously I have a platform. I would we would probably not be having this conversation today if it wasn't mm-hmm. through the medium of instagram connections and like seeing one another and building with one another on there but then there's all the fuckery (laughs) i'm like (laughs) you know it's a lot it's a lot of contradictions that we're holding there for sure but there is there's always resistance right whenever there are white supremacist models anti-black models fat phobic ableist classist all the things when there is that there's always resistance right like we know that across across sector and just historically so i'm also really longing to learn a little bit about kind of what are some alternative networks that you're seeing kind of like slowly sprout up i know you're part of some of this goodness but 
Yeah, what are some alternative networks you're seeing that folks are experimenting with? Mm. I feel like if we can name it as a program, just seeing people being more cognizant of their energy online and taking these social media breaks and taking pause, deleting the platform. I think that is a way of thinking of alternatives. It is a stance of, okay, I see this platform that many are engaged in. And I also see the ways in which my energy is not being held or met or growing in this space. And so folks leaving, I think, is actually a really important act or taking space in whatever way that means. But some of the alternative communities that, or let me say, some of the alternative platforms that I've seen have really been diving into community. And community is a term with many different angles. <laughs> community <laughs> means many, many different things. But I think that there is this space that people are exploring of how can we really connect to one another online in ways that can actually result in long-term sustainable relationships? And also, how can I be a part of communities where people are growing together. So one of those platforms is Arena, which is, uh, how would I describe Arena? I would say it pretty much is people with their own little libraries, archiving mm -hmm. knowledge and connecting to one another through the knowledge that you are archiving. Another space is a space that I work for, <laughs> but, I work for Somewhere Good, which is a social app that is to be released. And essentially what we're exploring is how to help people of color connect to each other and to the things that they love and through connecting to the things they love, better connecting with each other. And something that we're really thinking about specifically is social platforms have never really been designed with people of color at the forefront. Um, so what does it look like if you actually take a stance on a social platform where you really are questioning what that connectivity can look like? Um, and it's interesting because I feel like with the rise of these other platforms like TikTok, like um, like Clubhouse, we're seeing that people want to connect and talk to each other in new ways. And still we're seeing these same patterns emerge mm -hmm. of algorithmic bias, algorithmic oppression. So I think that's something that new platforms are exploring and really working against is what does it look like if we are very transparent about right. our algorithms? What does it look like if we really take on this question of what does safety look like online and on this platform? What does it mean if we are really invested in the care of users, in the care of their health, their well-being? Um, 
their spirit. So those are a few places. Yeah, I really appreciate all of what you just said. And it makes me think like consent is a non-negotiable aspect of care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now every time you open up a new tab, it's kind of like, um, you know, the cookies prompt comes up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For me, I have a very loose idea. I'm like, okay, they're like telling me like accept so you can use this and we're gonna like sell your data to like advertising and you're probably gonna see this shit again is like kind of what I understand and you kind of just accept and move along and you do this for dozens of tabs and websites on a daily and you know I've been thinking more around like there that it's such a false gesture of consent when we get Mm -hmm. prompts like this right so hearing you talk about like for these new emerging platforms, what can transparency really look like in care? And yeah, I mean, even, you know, I, I wonder for you as someone that does kind of understand this realm and this sort of like digital beast and sort, you know, in its own way, like when you see things like that, you know, do you kind of think to yourself like, you know, is it a helpful gesture? Is this, is it just super, very superficial? Like, do we need to feel more unsatisfied by things like that? Those little prompts. Are there real ways in which we can sort of divest from the advertising on every on every corner? Mm. That really makes me think of this quote that Dr. Sophia Moja Noble had in her work on algorithms of oppression. And she talked about how Google is creating advertising algorithms. It's not creating information algorithms. Mm -hmm. So when I think about consent online, I think about how I feel like there is purposefully lack of transparency around it. Mm -hmm. You named one way that consent works online, a website showing a banner that's like, hey, can we take your data so that we can continue to advertise to you? across every single platform that you follow. But it's not even transparent in that way. It just says, hey, cookies, yes or no. And I think there are other ways that consent pops up online that worry me. I think about reposting on Instagram, for example. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time on IG, I see folks resharing and reposting the work of other creators. And I notice how a lot of the time, not a lot of the time, but I notice how sometimes the original author's work is, or their name is taken out of the work. I notice how the original creator is not actually given props for the knowledge that they've created. And so I think about consent and I think about where we are getting our information from and how we are honoring the knowledge that we see. I also think about consent and how we're connecting to each other online. On Instagram, you can have a locked profile or a private profile and you can have an open profile. And that's pretty much the two levels that they give you when it comes to your privacy. And I wonder if there are opportunities to go deeper with that um i wonder if there are opportunities to actually really think about like okay is friend requesting a stranger really 
like what are the levels that are involved in that what are what is the safety that can be involved in that um yeah yeah you it's you offer a lot about this in your work you know i think of like certain posts and certain prompts that you've shared online that really they challenge me right like even these questions i'm like no i do be friend requesting people i don't know because i'm like we got my mutuals and you look dope (laughs) (laughs) um but it really it really is kind of the wild wild west um online you know like this question of boundaries and sort of terms of of engagement and like you know kind of agreements that we're all kind of consenting to is it's kind of all like non-existent right Mm -hmm. um which yeah just hearing you i'm like i would love if there was more of like a spectrum in terms of privacy because there's certain times where you know i feel i'm like i can't go private because you know i don't Mm -hmm. i don't use that platform as just like you know here's like me and my family right like i'm using it as like an educational platform and as a site where you can kind of connect to other um offerings that i'm i'm engaged in so I'm like, it wouldn't make sense for me to close it. But then sometimes it just feels so public and so open. And yeah, there is no in between. It's just very binary, which is frustrating. Um, okay. I also, I would love to hear, I'm sure you draw inspiration from so many folks and authors and writers and thinkers and artists. But I'm really curious, you know, we are pretty and arguably in some somewhat of apocalyptic times where I think we're all mm-hmm. having to reckon with the sort of you know damage and and like inching to extinction that we're all kind of through mm-hmm. and I think right now the choices that we make in just the next couple of years in our generational cycle are so so crucial so which is why I feel like personally I've been really leaning a lot more than usual on you know speculative fiction afrofuturism you know there's also a movement of afro nowism Mm -hmm. and kind of removing myself just for a moment of kind of the demands of this capitalist white supremacist society and imagine what life affirmation can be in a parallel universe right and what that would look like and feel like and sound like but yeah, I'm really curious for you, like, what are some of your key lessons um, from fiction and Afrofuturism that are just really bringing you life as you are navigating all these questions with your work and also just in your existence, like beyond work? Mm, yes. It's so funny because as you asked the question, I've been very deep in the work of N.K. Jemisin, who's a Black fantasy author and her trilogy called the broken earth trilogy and her work is in fantasy and as i've been within the world that she's created which is just black (laughs) like like in the tony morrison like octavia butler way where it does not have to be named it just is Mm. she has created a world in which blackness just is the world that her piece is centered in. And so when I think about the work of artists that are in the realm of Afrofuturism, whether it be N.K. Jemisin or Octavia Butler or Erica Badu or Sun Ra, 
what I really see is folks that are creating their own worlds that are completely just separate, (laughs) divested from the norms that white supremacy creates. Because I think about the ways that white supremacy creates these standards and norms and ideas of the ways that things should be. And that bleeds into everything. White supremacy notes the ways that we should behave, that should be rewarded, the ways that we should dress, the ways that we should show up in the world. There is a way that white supremacy says that safety should look like, that care should look like. And all of them are fucked up. (laughs) All of them are fucked up. And what Afrofuturism and Afronowism really teaches me, and which is why I'm so invested in the work of these authors, is that there are alternatives. There are worlds of other ways of being and living and creating. And that is so critical to me because it shows all the cracks in the system, I Mm. think. And to me, that really shows up online. I really think about the work of data healing, which is a term that was created by a guerrilla theorist, Nemegatere, and it works off of the term data trauma, which was created by media artist and programmer Olivia Michaela Ross. And data trauma is this idea that there are effects on our bodies, our spirits, our well-beings from navigating digital infrastructures, Mm -hmm. specifically digital infrastructures that were created to exploit and categorize and discard people that fall outside of whiteness. And so both Olivia and Nema have named that data trauma then necessitates data healing, which is the idea that there are ways that we can work against the trauma that data, especially on digital structures, causes. And I really think about the ties of that with Afrofuturism. I think about how there is an incredible opportunity to reimagine digital spaces. And I do want to be I don't want to say pessimistic, (laughs) that is not the right term, but I want to be careful of thinking that the internet can be some form of nirvana in a way. Mm. I, I worry that there can be a narrative that there is an internet that is possible, that is completely devoid of the power dynamics that we see in day to day life. And I think what Afrofuturism really comes to again and again is that it really sees these entanglements. It sees the ways in which power still shows up, but it goes at it in a different way. It looks at it, it really holds it in a different way. So I wonder about those 
opportunities that are stickier and gooier Mm -hmm. online. I think about the digital brilliance that Blackness can create online and so much, I mean, I believe that internet culture cannot stand without Black culture. It couldn't have, it will not, like, and so what does it look like if we create platforms and create spaces that can really hold that knowledge and that power and really honor it? That's something that Afrofuturism is really speaking to me and grounding me in right now. Yes. Mm. That's so, like, it's very warm in my body hearing that. Mm. Thank you. I I feel like you are someone, and I really resonate with this personally, you are also constantly looking to the sort of cycles in the natural world and in nature and in the plants to sort of observe those cycles and also just draw reflections and and draw parallels in the ways that we can behave and move and sort of orient ourselves and almost reject the pace of capitalism right that are so transactional and it is so chaotic um and it is so unforgiving Mm -hmm. that i i would love to sort of end on the no and the curiosity of just like what are what cycles are you learning from right now what is what are your plant friends telling you? What is the nature <laughs> around you reminding you of? Yes, I love that question. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I've had a plant struggle for the past <laughs> three months with one in particular. Um, it's this mini monstera and a break happened in it where essentially the bottom half was very strong the top half was very strong but the middle was completely weakened to the point Mm -hmm. that it was totally bending over and so i decided to cut it which made me very sad (laughs) (laughs) i attempted to propagate it y'all but it did not work it was one of my first times doing that so essentially what i was left with was this little stump And I was so sad because it was so beautiful and blooming and had many different leaves. But I took a little stump and it's been chilling in my kitchen. And over time, I've just been watering it. Fingers crossed that something emerges. And this week I looked at it and there were three healthy ass leaves just stretching towards the sun. And it really moved me because I've been feeling very, I've very much been feeling the need to take a lot of space and sit in silence. And a lot of 2020 overwhelmed my body and spirit. And I reached a breaking point with it. And I was like, you know, I really just need to sit and listen in silence. And I've been taking a social media break. I think I'm now on month two of that because I've really been wanting to ground in knowing why do I use this platform Mm. and for what? It can be any reason, but if I use social media, I want it to be mindful in that I understand my purpose for using it. And so what that's required of me is to take a break 
from that platform. And with that break, there has been an itch to A, return, B, that I'm not being productive, that I'm not doing the things that I should be doing. And that creates frustration that has created looking at myself sideways a little bit. But what my little plants have really been holding me with is like, no, bro, you just need to take your time to really Mm. ground your roots, like to really ground in this moment in the values that you hold in the things that are important to you right now. Because I think the other thing that I really think about a lot is that I am an ever shifting being with a lot of different changes, with a lot of different needs. And being able to give myself space in order to let my many angles and many selves be and change, that has been very nourishing. So I feel like my plan gave me that affirmation to just like, keep going, <laughs> keep grinding. <laughs> like, Do your thing, exactly. your time. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. What a beautiful affirmation and perfect timing. I feel like there's always like these very subtle reminders that we get from just nature and our plants around us that come in such specific moments, kind of when we need the most and totally hear you on Yeah, it's really hard. Even when you have it all intellectually here and you can really articulate it, it is so embodied and it's so somatic how these platforms are so insidiously within us, right? Like, Mm -hmm. totally resonate. I kicked off the year, you know, I was like, no social media, no coffee, no alcohol. Like, (laughs) I really need to, you know, return to center and also have a very honest conversation around like, what are your tendencies, right? Like, why do you feel like you need to drink as much as you do? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is there maybe like an underlying anxiety or like, you know, there's all there's always many stories, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you really feel like you're like, well, I'm irrelevant again. Like, I ain't said <laughs> shit in social media. Yes. And it's like, babe, like you're relevant. I mean, even the idea of relevancy as humans is so devoid of humanity, right? Like we know that we believe just by it's our birthright to have access to dignity and love and care. So this idea of relevancy is so it's so antithetical to to that knowing that we know. So, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. I resonate fully, fully, fully. So happy we had this conversation today. I'm excited you're taking some time off. You are not missing out. I'm also very, <laughs> I'm also very excited about the launch of Somewhere Good. Like I told you, I already signed up yesterday. It was very cute and warm and just, you know, brought a smile to my face as I'm seeing the screen and it's just like a scroll of just beautiful books of color with like what is their sun sign and (laughs) all the things like where are they all over the country and yeah it's like funny I would like literally had a smile on my face as I was seeing that and I was like ooh, I'm so excited and I also have a lot of trust in the folks that have been working on this and really respect all of y'all's contributions and offerings all the time so you know 
hear you with your weariness and respect it. And I also think this is very exciting. Thank you. I'm so honored to have been here. So appreciative of you and everything that you create in this space. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, love.